The main idea that we want to be present in the forefront of our minds as we progress through the verses is this, that God's covenant with Abraham is again the central theme of the narrative. Abraham's trust is in God, and his hope is in the fulfillment of God's promises in the covenant. Remember back in chapter 22 that God had tested Abraham and saw that his trust was not in the uh, in Isaac, but his trust was in God, and his hope was in God fulfilling that covenant. And we see that again here with Abraham's continued uh, trust in God. Abraham trusts God concerning the seed line to supply a continuation of descendants, and so faithfully seeks a suitable wife for his son, Isaac. Abraham trusts God concerning the land promise. So he and Isaac do not leave the land, as Abraham had done before, where he had found only shame and failure. In this case, the patriarchs stay in the land and send the servants out. I also want to remind you that in this last section here of Genesis, uh, the Abraham narrative in Genesis, we have a chiasm. This is the Hebrew's way of focusing in and telling you what the main point is. This chiasm focuses on the life of Isaac. What is the most important event in the life of Isaac other than the event continuing the seed line? So we started with Abraham risking it all for the covenant which we will find paralleled with Esau rejecting that covenant. Then we moved to the generation or the genealogies of Nahor, which did not receive a part in this covenant. And then the genealogy of the line of Ishmael, which also did not receive part in this covenant, though they had their own blessings that were related to Israel as part of their blessing of Israel. And then last week, we saw the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. We also saw the acquisition of the first plot of land, which he legally owns within the land of Canaan. And that will be paired with Abraham's own death in chapter 25. And so right here, smack dab in the middle, is the longest chapter in Genesis and one of the longest chapters in the entire Bible. And it repeats itself almost four times. Because this is such an important passage, such an important section of scripture, and the culmination of God's faithfulness in the life of Abraham. Because God didn't just promise to him a son, he promised to him descendants. He promised to him eternal promises that needed an eternal line of descendants, and eventually an eternal person in that line of descendants. This shows God's ultimate faithfulness to Abraham. Abraham's storyline does not peak with Abraham's faithfulness, but with God's faithfulness. And so we see Abraham preparing for God's faithfulness, not trying to organize and orchestrate the whole situation, but acting on faith that God is faithful and sending his servant into a land that's unknown or has not been seen for a long time without a specific direction of who to go to and who to find and which directions to go, just to go back to that land and trust that God is going to bring the right person and that Isaac, or that uh, this servant, should bring home a wife for Isaac that God has chosen. These four sections of Genesis 24 break down again into very nice sections. 
First, we've got verses 1 through 9, which is in the land of Canaan, where a man is speaking to a man. This is Abraham speaking to a servant. And it will be paralleled by the final episode, which is also quite short, in verses 62 to 67, which returns to the land of Canaan. But now is a man speaking to a woman. It is Isaac speaking with Rebekah. In the middle, we have two episodes, both in Mesopotamia, which has a man speaking to a woman, the servant speaking to Rebekah, and then the servant speaking to Laban, negotiating Rebekah's betrothal. And so this has been very carefully crafted to demonstrate God's care in bringing about the fulfillment and the constant repetition of how this came about emphasizes the fact that man is not doing this, but man is trusting God and God is doing it. So this morning's message is sending Abraham's servant, the commission of Abraham's servant to go faithfully trusting the God of the covenant to bring about the next generation of the covenant heirs. We begin by setting the scene and the scene is set with Abraham in his old age. It says now Abraham was old and advanced in age and you might say well he was already old and he's been old since we met him. He was 75 when we met him which I guess isn't that old but at this point he's 140. He's almost twice his age of what he was when he first entered into the land. Usually this type of uh, introduction to a pericope marks the final sequences in a patriarch's life. For example, when we meet Joshua, in Joshua 23, actually this is definitely not where we meet him, but where we say goodbye to him, it says, Now it came about after many days, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads, and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. Joshua also trusted on God's faithfulness in the conquest of the land. He staked his faith in God's covenant promises that this land had been given to them and would be delivered to them. Both here in Joshua 23 and in Joshua 13, where we see a similar phrase repeated, the focus and the emphasis is on that land that is left to be conquered, that God has been faithful to deliver every portion of land that he has told them to go out and take, and that Israel will still have work to do to continue to trust and to follow God. And this is the patriarch Joshua signing off, passing it on to the next generation and saying, there's more that God will do in your life as well. David as well. We say farewell to him in 1 Kings, and it begins, Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. Abraham is old. He's about 140 at this time. And the summary of Abraham's life is that the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Summary focuses on God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham not on Abraham's growth, not even on Abraham's failures and blessings, but in, or uh, failures and successes, but rather on the blessings from God. Genesis 15, 15, for example, God had promised to Abraham, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, 
and you will be buried at a good old age. We see Abraham already in his old age of 140, and guess what? He's still got 35 years left. Abraham will die at a good old age and be buried. He promised, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Now, we don't see the great nation yet, but God has blessed Abraham, and he has made Abraham's name great. In fact, Abraham is not only uh, well-revered and renowned among his neighbors, we've seen both the Gazaites and the Hethites uh, somewhat scared of Abraham's prowess in the land. He's a foreigner, he's a stranger, and yet they all defer to him in major issues. Part of it is his wealth, but a lot of it, as has been pointed out more specifically in the scriptures, is that they recognize God's hand on his life. God has brought him into this land, and God has blessed him in this land, and even the neighbors see it. In Genesis 15, 5 through 7, God had promised him a multitude of descendants. It says, he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Here in this little promise, we've got the land, the seed, and the blessing all in focus. In Genesis 17, where God gave Abraham a sign of the covenant that would be continued throughout all the generations so that they would never forget this covenant. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. God quite literally made Abraham's name greater than it was. He says, I have made you exceedingly fruitful. Mind you, at this point, Abraham still had not had a son. Abraham had not had a child by Sarah. He did have Ishmael. And I will make nations of you. Here we have multiple nations. Why? Because Isaac is going to lead to two different nations himself. Ishmael is going to be yet another nation. And from Jacob will come the nation Israel. Kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, a covenant without end, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. These were the promises of God leading up through most of the life of Abraham. And then suddenly in the last few chapters, we saw him get a well in Beersheba, and we saw him get land in Machpelah, and we saw him get his son, the son that God had promised he would deliver to him. We saw that son maintained and delivered to Abraham, rescued from death. God has been faithful to Abraham, and he has blessed him in everything. 
and in all the promises that he had first given him when he told him to come out of the land of Haran. God has not let a single one fail. He has given Abraham the beginning of the land. He has given him the beginning of descendants, and he has given him the beginning of blessing. And there is so much more to be received. Abraham in his life did not fail to receive the promises of God. He failed to receive them in full. And that's because God takes time to work out these promises, but he is faithful to deliver them to Abraham. And Abraham knew that God, in order to be faithful to his promise of the seed, would have to resurrect Isaac if he died prematurely. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, every single descendant of Abraham that has ever died has died with promises left to remain, left to receive. There is the promise of resurrection for Israel, and we share in the same promise through the Messiah, that promise of resurrection which belongs to us as well. Why? Because there is a promise left for us to receive, and that promise is eternal life, and eternal life in the presence of God. We move on to the next character in the narrative. Abraham said to his servant. Now this servant, we're not told his name this time, but I think we're told his name before. He says this is the oldest of his household, and he had charge of all that he owned. Now you might ask, why doesn't Isaac have charge of all that he owns? Well, Isaac is going to be delivered, all that he owns as the heir. But here, this servant is the one who is taking charge who runs the flocks, who runs basically the family business. But when it is time to hand it over as a belonging and as a possession, as we'll see in chapter 25, it is handed over to no one else but Isaac. But here we have this servant who is serving as an oldest son would, having charge over all that he owned, but not being a possessor of the promise. He doesn't actually own what he's serving over. And I do think we've met him before. Genesis 15, 1 through 2 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be great. And Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? This wasn't a, please, Lord, let this heir be my heir and don't give me a child of my own. But he's saying the natural course of things today, if I were to die being childless and having no heir, it would all go to my oldest servant, the one in charge of my household. And that is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Well, now God has given offspring to Abraham. He has given him the son, Isaac. But God said, this man will not be your heir. God knew ahead of time. He is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, and that child is not going to come just from the body of Abraham, but from the body of Sarah as well. God is going to fulfill it literally, specifically, and exactly as he planned. But the one who will come forth from your own body He shall be your heir. Now keep that in mind. That was an important promise of God to Abraham at the time that Eliezer of Damascus was his heir. 
God is, or Abraham is asking now this servant, Eliezer of Damascus, most likely to take an oath. So he says, please place your hand under my thigh. The most I'm going to say about this is that it is a euphemism. This does not mean his upper leg. In Genesis 46, 26, it says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who come to Egypt, his direct descendants, which literally in the Hebrew, exactly the same phrase as we see in chapter 24, literally it comes from his thigh. Not including the wives of Jacob's sons were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. In Exodus 1.5, a summary of this event, all the persons who came from the loins, literally the thigh of Jacob, were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. We also see it in Judges chapter 8, verse 20 from Gideon. This is a, a means of making a covenant, making an oath, but a very specific kind of covenant or oath in a very specific situation. In Genesis 47, 29, we see the same oath being taken concerning Jacob. No, yeah, Jacob. When the time for Israel, Jacob, to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my father's, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burial place. And he said, I will do so as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship uh, at the head of the bed. Now, Charles Pfeiffer has said this in summary of this oath. According to the biblical idiom, children are said to issue from the thigh or the loins of their father. Placing the hand on the thigh signified that in the event that an oath were violated, the children who had issued or who might issue from the thigh would avenge the act of disloyalty. This has been called a swearing by posterity and is particularly applicable here because the servant's mission is to ensure a posterity for Abraham through Isaac. Now, I think this is a good summary of the custom in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia of that day, and it applies here to Abraham and Isaac, but I don't think that's exactly what's going on here, and I don't think that is exactly the significance of this issue. Because remember, God's promise in abrogating Eliezer of Damascus was that the line would actually come from Abraham's body itself. And so that was a significant episode in the life of Eliezer. Not only that, but this was the place in which God had placed the sign of his covenant. This would be a very visceral reminder that God was faithful in every generation and that Eliezer was under this covenant, but not heir to it. God said in Genesis 17, This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants 
A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now we'll notice that although Eliezer of Damascus is not a Hebrew, he is not an Israelite, he is under this covenant and he treats the God of this covenant as his covenant God. But when he goes to the land of Aram and seeks out a uh, child from Nahor, he refers to God, the God of his master, the covenant God of Abraham specifically. All this servant's very careful intentions all root back to God's faithfulness in his covenant. And so we have Abraham asking this servant to yet even further elevate the solemnness of this oath. Abraham says, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of earth. This is not three different gods. This is three different aspects to the same exact God. He is Yahweh, the covenant God, the personal God of Israel. He is also the God of heaven and earth, heaven and earth being his sovereign domain. All things are in his control. This is Elohim, the almighty God. Remember what the author of Hebrews said, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. There is no greater name by which an oath could be made. And by elevating the name in this way, he makes it the most solemn, solemn oath he possibly could. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. There should be no dispute after this oath that this servant plans to be faithful to every promise that he makes to Abraham. And this Abraham, nearing the end of his life, has no way of guaranteeing the surety of this oath except by the faithfulness of God. And therefore, the oath is made on the name of God so that the faithfulness of God will bring it about. An oath is much different than a promise. A promise comes with no consequence for failure other than showing the lack of power in the person promising. An oath is naturally what we would call an imprecation. When you take an oath, you are basically calling down consequence on yourself for failing to meet the stipulations of that promise. There is possibly in here an element of if, uh, if Eliezer fails in this oath, then his bloodline, his line should cease. So this is a self-imprecatory oath. Eliezer, under the highest consequences, is sworn to Abraham to be faithful in the activities that he has promised to undertake on behalf of the covenant. Now, this is because Abraham is about to make some specifications to Eliezer. He is not to go about this haphazardly, but he is to do it exactly in the way that Abraham tells him. He says, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. He says, it's not going to cut it to just go find a wife from this area around. Your job's not to just find anyone. 
It's to find the one who God has prepared. There are some good reasons why he does not want to marry into the Canaanite line specifically, though it will be specifically narrowed down to his own bloodline. The Canaanites particularly should not be part of this covenant because this is a covenant in which God chooses to bless this nation and through it to bless the whole world. Remember in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, God's promise, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis is sometimes referred to as the book of blessings and cursings because it is so frequently mentioned that we can trace the blessings and the cursings all the way from the very first chapter of Genesis to the very last chapter. And here in the national context, a national blessing and a national curse with Abraham separates them from the Canaanite line. Back in Genesis 9.24, when God cursed Ham's line, he specifically cursed him through the descendant Canaan. He said, cursed to be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. And blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. And let Canaan also be the servant of Japheth. Abraham, through the line of Shem, is supposed to receive blessing, but also be blessing. He is not to marry in with and mingle with the Canaanites who were under divine curse. This would disqualify these descendants from being the blessing that God plans them to be. In Genesis 26, 34 through 35, we see Esau, the brother of Jacob, going off and marrying two Hethite women. And remember, the Hethites are Canaanites. Esau was 40 years old, and he married Judith, the daughter of Be'eri, the Hethite, and Basimat, the daughter of Elon, the Hethite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Why? Esau had married out of the covenant line, and not only marrying out of the covenant line, but specifically marrying into the cursed line of Canaan. Those whose land... They were there to dispossess. The Canaanites had lost their right to the land. Intermarrying with them would put you in their curse. Not you would not bring them into your blessing. And so he makes a specific request of him. He says, you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now he's going to directly again quote from Genesis 12, 2, or 12, 1 through 2 in verse 7. But here he reverses it. Where God had called him out of his country and away from his relatives, he now sends Eliezer, his servant, to his country and to his relatives. And then the servant said to him, suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Here is a very strong parallel. God had called Abraham out of his land and away from his country, away from his people, into a land that he hadn't seen to receive a promise that he did not fully know or fully understand, just to trust God and God's promises to bring it about. His wife, Sarah, came with him. Well, here, Isaac is already in the land. And Abraham is seeking out another bride for his son 
and is literally choosing one cut from the same cloth as Sarah. One who would come to receive this promise and this blessing from God, not having seen the land, not having seen the promises fully in their fruition, and to choose of her own volition to come willingly. The servant recognizes that she might choose not to, because she's under no obligation to follow. There is only the promise. And if she chooses to be part of that promise. In 24, 58 through 60, we'll see her response. When she's given the option, you see the text or the narrative didn't have to go in the direction of Rebecca willing. Laban could have decided as the one in charge of making her betrothal that she's going. But the way it worked out, and as we'll see, Laban's kind of a skeevy guy, Laban, thinking Rebecca would say no, perhaps at least no to going so quickly, says, well, why don't we let her choose? And so then they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, simply, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebecca and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, now notice what they're focusing on. May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. This phrase only occurs one other time in Scripture, and that was just a few chapters ago with the final reconfirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham, specifically the first and only reconfirmation after the birth of Isaac. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Rebecca is going to choose to come because of the promise and the faithfulness of God. And as she's being sent away by her maids, they are fully expecting her to become part of this covenant because this is why God has called her out. This is why God has sent the servant. This is why Abraham was faithful to send the servant. This is why we find Isaac waiting patiently on God. The servant, seeing that Rebecca might choose not to come, and if, keep in mind at this point, he doesn't know he's going for Rebecca. He doesn't know who he's going for. God is going to show him once he gets there. But he says, suppose this woman, this unknown woman, is not willing to come, not willing to follow me back to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Should I bring Isaac back up to Aram in order to maybe entice her to come, maybe show her this guy's not so bad? Yeah, sure, this is a blind betrothal, but at least you get to see the guy. What's Abraham's response? Beware that you do not take my son back there. This is as emphatic as it possibly could be in the Hebrew text, without adding, of course, a lot more oaths and imprecations and, and don't you dares. He simply says, beware that you do not take my son back there. Under no circumstances should Isaac go back to where Abraham had come from. Interestingly enough, Isaac is going to send Jacob back to the same land. Isaac called Jacob, 
blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And from there, take to yourself a wife from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now, most of you have probably or probably recall this episode of what happens with Jacob in Laban's house. He gets given bad deal after bad deal after bad deal, swindled and cheated until finally he takes his family and they ditch. He faces shame, embarrassment, years of servitude to Laban for promises that fail to come to fruition. All well, God's promises, God's covenant are waiting him in the land. Isaac said before Jacob left, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham, to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. It's not until Jacob returns to the promised land that God actually confirms this to him. All of his time spent away from the promised land is spent in silence. But the moment he returns, and he returns here to Bethel, the same place that Abraham first arrived at, just south of Shechem, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I give to Ab- gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. If anyone tells you today that the promises to Israel do not include the land, it is absolutely false. Promises to Israel include the land. In fact, especially in the Pentateuch, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the emphasis is far greater on the land promise than on the seed promise or on the blessing promise. The seed is supposed to dwell in the land. The blessing occurs in the land. They're taught how to live in the land so that there might be a blessing. The seed is a background promise as God's working that out in generation after generation after generation. But the part of the promise that Israel possesses time after time and loses time after time, but has the guarantee of final permanent establishment is the land. The land is the first aspect of the promise that they are given the greatest experience of during their national reign. Abraham says then, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your descendants, I will give this land. This is one big, long adjective, basically, describing God. All of these clauses and phrases, he's piling up to describe Yahweh, the covenant God. This is the exact one, he says, he is the one who will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. 
Notice this and remember who this angel of the Lord is. This angel of the Lord that we've met multiple times now, who we just saw recently in chapter 22, stopping Abraham from landing the knife in Isaac. This is the angel of God, Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity. Oftentimes when we're looking through the Old Testament, one of the best exercises to do is to find Jesus in the Old Testament because he's not a new character in the New Testament. It's not the first time we see him. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, fulfillment of the promise of a coming seed. And here we see the person of God, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, going ahead of the servant to prepare this wife for Isaac, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Jesus was involved in procuring his own bloodline, the seed line through which he would be born, the seed line through which he would restore blessing to this land, God's creation, and to his people, the children of God. So he says, you shall take a wife from that land. Genesis 28, 3 through 4. Whoops. Oh, I don't need that. And then finally he says, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. In other words, it all has to do with Rebecca's volitional obedience. She has a choice in the matter. God doesn't force her hand. The servant doesn't force her hand. Abraham doesn't force her hand. She has the option to choose to become part of this covenant or not. The promise is so great. The faithfulness of God is so great. There's really nothing to lose for her. But if she's looking at the promise from a worldly perspective, she might be tricked into thinking there's something to lose. But really what she is walking into is promises beyond anything this world has to offer. Beyond anything that this fallen world can possibly muster. Into the promise of God's redemption of all things and to become a part of how he works that out. This was an amazing offer and Rebecca seemed to understand the immensity of it and wasted no breath in agreeing to come. But Abraham once again in the repetition makes this even more emphatic, says only do not take my son back there. Abraham has made the mistake of leaving the promised land. He's gone down to Egypt. He's wandered off into Gaza. Each time he goes where God does not tell him to go, he encounters trial, shame. He himself acts very sinfully until he returns to the Lord. Same thing's going to happen to Jacob. Jacob's just going to keep on going. And the result of that, as was pointed out to me recently, was they got kicked out of the land. They got sent into Egypt for exactly this kind of issue. This was a big deal. A lot is riding on the faithfulness of this servant. And now I might draw this back to the very beginning and remind you who this servant is and say, all this is riding on the one who didn't receive this inheritance, from whom it would have all gone to otherwise. But again, 
we see this household of Abraham, that it is all learning the faithfulness of God. And so Eliezer of Damascus, who if he's looking at this through a worldly perspective, might feel miffed that he is not the covenant heir. And he might choose to curse Isaac, to trick him somehow, to not bring this wife, to hate the covenant people of God. Again, I'll remind you, there's a, a uh, doctrine out there called reformed, or a, oh, tipped my cards there, called uh, replacement theology, in which the church tries to take the covenant promises given to Israel as if they are their own. This often, and I would say even always, when brought to its logical end, ends in anti-Semitism. This air of thinking we should get those promises. Those should belong to us. After all, we were faithful and he was not. My, this uh, servant might look at Isaac, especially when he comes back and sees him lounging about in Behir el Roy after he's gone on what probably took him a few years, if not many months, 450 miles each way. We have a tendency to look at Israel, especially today in their unfaithfulness, and say they don't deserve what they have promised to them. But we, the church, we should get that. We deserve that. Those are not our promises. Our promises are amazing, and they're wonderful, because we get to share in the blessing of Israel. We get to share in their Messiah. We get to be a light to Israel today. We get to be the ones who show them who their Messiah is. To convince them from their own scriptures. To be a part of that blessing. Just as Eliezer, who was not the one to inherit these promises, got to share in the blessing by blessing Israel. And so the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. He gave his solemn vow, and I don't think there is a chapter where we see a more excited character. This servant is just hopping from place to place, telling everybody about everything that has just happened. He is so excited to be part of this. And we should too. We certainly should too. So in conclusion, God's covenant with Abraham is again the central theme of the narrative. Abraham's trust is in God, and his hope is in the fulfillment of all God's promises in the covenant. Abraham trusts God concerning the seed line to supply a continuation of descendants, and so faithfully seeks a suitable wife for his son Isaac. Abraham trusts God concerning the land promise, so he and Isaac do not leave the land as Abraham had done before, which had led to shame and failure. Abraham's grown up, and he's ready to trust God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your wonderful and amazing blessings. We thank you for your faithfulness demonstrated towards Israel. And we thank you that as we see that you do not renege on your promises to Israel, that we have a guarantee that you will not renege on any of your promises to us. 
but in any other circumstance, that would be in doubt. But you are you, you are perfect, you are holy, and you are faithful. And all the promises that you have given to us, including resurrection, eternal life with you, and the righteousness of Christ, this is all certain. So we thank you for that confidence we can have in your testimony. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.